0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. An Addendum. Since broadcasting the last plane tale, Murder on the Flight Deck, I found out that one of our longest and most valued listeners, Captain Steve Andress, was personally involved with part of the story. And I realised beforehand I would, of course, have reached out to Steve to make sure he was happy for me to tell the story. But since then, he and I have been in contact, and I'm glad to say that Steve wasn't upset that I told the tale. To fill in the gaps for those who are listening to this in isolation, my previous plane tale, entitled Murder on the Flight Deck, dealt with two incidents where a passenger attacked the pilots of an airliner in order to cause their own death. Very sadly, in the case that is linked to Steve's family, the suicidal passenger succeeded in his aims and caused the crash of Pacific Airlines Flight 733, killing everyone on board, including Ray Andress, the co-pilot, and Steve's father. In Steve's own words, I was surprised to hear it, but I wasn't upset by it. As I said in a message during the podcast, if the story was to be told, I'm glad it came from you. You always do a fantastic job with your tales. About four years ago, I heard for the first time the ATC communication from my father saying that they had been shot. That was quite unsettling. The crash... My mom calls it the accident, I think, to soften it for us kids, occurred when I was two and I don't have any memories of my father. My mother has said that when my father's flights would pass through San Jose, south of San Francisco, she would take us kids out to the airport to see him. I wanted to be a pilot for as long as I remember. I'm sure it was because of my father. He was a USAF RB 47 reconnaissance pilot. Now, for those who may not be familiar, the aircraft that Steve's father flew was the massive Boeing Stratojet, originally designed as a high level, high speed, strategic nuclear bomber. It was powered by six General Electric J 47 turbojets, four of which were mounted in pairs inboard and the remaining two outboard. Its main undercarriage were two bogies. One steerable, mounted fore, and the other mounted aft, bicycle-style, and they retracted into the fuselage, plus they had retractable outriggers mounted under the inboard engine mounts. It was a gleaming, sleek and futuristic design, straight from a kid's comic, with the highly swept, shoulder-mounted wings and a large fighter-style bubble canopy. The pilots sat in tandem, with the co-pilot doubling up as a rear gunner using the remote radar-directed M24 tail cannons. The third crew member also doubled up as a navigator and, in the recce version, a photographer, operating the 11 cameras that could be fitted. The RB-47s came the closest of all the variants to being in combat. Some missions required them to overfly the Soviet Union, and several were engaged by Soviet fighters. In one case, after a top-secret reconnaissance mission in the Kola Peninsula, a 4th Air Division 91st Strategic Reconnaissance Wing RB-47E flew over the Soviet Union. It was flying at high altitude, out of reach of the MiG-15s, but unknown to the USAF intelligence, some MiG-17s had been stationed in the area that were able to intercept the intruder. The Strata jet was chased by several Soviet MiG-17 fighters attempting to destroy the aircraft with their guns over Soviet and then Finnish airspace. Although sustaining damage, the crew managed to escape over Sweden back to their home base at RAF fairford in England. The RB-47's high speed and combat range were crucial. At least five of them were fired on, and despite returning fire with their tail guns, three were brought down. Going back to Steve's story... He received his commission through ROTC, so like him, I was going to do Air Force ROTC as well. However, when I mentioned this to a friend in the 7th grade, this was shortly after Vietnam, he said that the only ones guaranteed a pilot slot were the Air Force Academy graduates. So I went there. After pilot training, I flew the KC-135 out of Okinawa, then transferred to the RC-135. I didn't pick recon because of my father. The RC provided real-world operations in a peacetime air force. I thought it would be more interesting, and it was. I flew RC operations out of Shemya, near the western tip of the Aleutian Islands, while based in Alaska. Later, I operated out of Kadena in Okinawa, Athens, and Mildenhall in the UK, while based in Nebraska. I'm now a 737 captain for a major airline. I also flew the MD-80 before upgrading. As you mention in the plane tale, the captain's daughter, Julie, flew commercially for many years and she retired from North West. She currently performs at air shows in her T-34. I went up with her once and she let me do a barrel roll. One of my sisters became a flight attendant. Both she and Julie flew together once, years ago, on a Hughes Air West F-27. Julie, the pilot, and my sister, the flight attendant. He also mentioned that the shooter took out an insurance policy from a machine in the airport. My mother, working in conjunction with ALPA, testified before a congressional committee with the goal of banning those machines. In the end, some states did ban them, I believe. I'm often asked how my mother felt about me pursuing a flying career. I was fortunate that my mother saw that this crash was the result of a terrible crime and not because of an unsafe industry. She was always supportive of my flying goals. I've listened to all 330 APG shows and even the Catholic pilot. I've learned a lot and I'm a better pilot and captain as a result. I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to do what I love. Well, thanks Steve for sharing your story with us and providing a more intimate view of an awful incident. In the 60s and 70s, the proliferation of flight insurance kiosks at airports was implicated in a number of incidents, such as the one involving Steve's father on Flight 773. And his mother, in conjunction with the Airline Pilots Association, was instrumental in making a strong case for their removal. For those listeners from a slightly different era who aren't familiar with these machines, they were positioned in airport terminals by insurance companies and, for a handful of quarters, they would automatically dispense an insurance policy for your flight. Selling flight insurance wasn't a new thing even back then. In 1911, one could buy aviation-related coverage from Lloyds of London, called a White Wings policy. And by 1919, the Travellers Insurance Company introduced insurance which offered death and disability coverage for a passenger. Called a Trip Accident Ticket Insurance, it ran from the day of purchase until 4am the next day. The very first of these aero tickets, as they were called, was purchased by President Wilson for $5, with a possible payout of 5000 Even the Wright brothers were customers of this coverage. This type of insurance grew and was sold from booths at the airport, but after the Second World War, demand grew to the point where staff behind kiosks couldn't cope and vending machines were introduced to cover the passengers' needs. However, The perception that an aircraft was an easy target for those who wanted a claim on these policies persisted, and it became a motivation for appalling crimes and mass murder. In the United States, the event that brought this all to a head was perpetrated by a man called John Gilbert Graham. Born in Denver early in 1932, Graham was the child of Daisy Graham and her second husband. Nicknamed Jack... Graham was Daisy's second child, as she already had a daughter from her first marriage. Jack Graham was born in the height of the Depression, and when he was five, his father died from pneumonia. In desperate poverty, his mother's only solution, as was fairly common at the time, was to send young Jack to an orphanage. A few years later, Daisy married for a third time, but her new husband only lived for a short while. She used her inheritance to become a successful businesswoman, but despite her newfound wealth, she didn't rescue Jack from the orphanage, leaving him abandoned there. In 1954, when Jack was 22, there was a reunion of sorts, but hardly surprisingly, they had a pretty poor relationship and were often witnessed arguing and shouting at each other. Daisy was, by then, running a drive-in restaurant, and Jack worked for her, but that business failed after a suspicious gas explosion caused severe damage. However, an insurance policy that Jack had taken out of the restaurant paid out. The police knew about Jack, though, since he already had a criminal record for embezzlement, forgery, and illegal transport of whiskey. Jack Graham plotted to murder his mother. And for a blueprint, he followed, almost identically, the case of a Canadian murderer. Albert Gouet, on the 9th of September 1949, murdered 23 people aboard a Canadian Pacific Airlines DC-3, flight 108, in Quebec. He was stuck in a loveless marriage, and because of the staunchly Catholic divorce laws in Quebec at the time, he knew he couldn't get a divorce. With his wife flying from Montreal to Quebec City, he put a dynamite time bomb in her suitcase and then, on the day of the flight, took out flight insurance worth over $100,000 in today's money. His motive wasn't purely the money, though he wanted to be free to marry his mistress, a 19-year-old waitress. He planned for the explosion to occur over the St. Lawrence River so that the evidence would be lost in the water, but a small departure delay meant that the aircraft's destruction happened over land. His conviction was the first proven incidence of sabotaging a passenger flight for criminal purposes. Albert... Along with Ruest, the clockmaker who constructed the bomb, and Ruest's sister who purchased the dynamite, were all sentenced to death by hanging. Albert's last words were, At least I die famous. Ruest's sister was the thirteenth and last woman to be hanged in Canada. Six years later, Jack Graham succeeded in building a suitable dynamite bomb and secreted it in his mother's suitcase. At the airport, he purchased flight insurance worth over $340,000 in today's money and being the sole beneficiary in her will, if his plan to murder his mother succeeded, he was destined to be a very wealthy man. The aircraft, a United Airlines DC-6, departed Denver, bound for Portland, with 39 passengers and five crew members on board. The last call the aircraft made was over the Denver beacon. In the Denver tower, the controller's attention was grabbed by a bright flash that illuminated the 10,000-foot cloud base. Suspecting the worst, they checked in all the aircraft under their control, all but Flight 629 replied, and then the phone calls started coming in. Searchers who reached the crash site quickly determined that all on board had perished in the destruction of the DC-6. The fires were so intense that they burned for three days. The FBI conducted a very thorough investigation and through chemical analysis and painstaking examination of the debris they concluded that a dynamite bomb had been used. Suspicion immediately fell on those who might gain the most from the deaths of the passengers and the crew, and with the evidence mounting against him, Jack Graham finally confessed. Despite the number of victims, there was no law covering the situation, so Graham was charged with a single count of murder, that of his mother. He was convicted, and a few days later he was executed in a gas chamber. Before his death, he said, "'As far as feeling remorse for these people, I don't. I can't help it. Everybody pays their way and takes their chances. That's just the way it goes.'" In the aftermath of the destruction of Flight 629, and as a result of the campaign by Steve's mother with the help of ALPA, the state of Colorado banned the use of insurance vending machines and airport insurance sales remained legal only so long as a person sold it. In the end, the death of the insurance machines really came about because of the increasing safety of air travel and the ever diminishing chance of one's demise on a flight. But I have to really admire Steve's mother for her efforts in the campaign. I also admire Steve for his service to his country and for the success of his flying career it started in the most difficult of circumstances and i'm sure that the apg crew and our happy band of listeners will join me in wishing you and your family the very best for the future Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show, Aviation Podcast. Find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.